Welcome to this week's edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Alongside Chris Dorch, I'm Kevin Ingram. Always great to talk some hoops with Mr. Dorch, the main man with the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook. What's going on? Well, man, I've spent way too much time trying to figure out what the heck is the biathlon (laughs) and why does it exist? Uh, I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to the Winter Olympics this year, honestly, because... uh, Michaela Schifrin hasn't done well, and I, she's the one athlete that I probably know anything about. Uh, but I, I, I was scanning through the dial. I got on USA Network, and here's this biathlon. They're skiing with the rifle on their back, and I'm like, what the heck? So I, I looked it up. It began as a military training exercise in Norway. Uh, it was first contested as military patrol in the 24 Olympics, but it wasn't made an Olympic sport till 1960. Now there's 33 medals available for it in wow. 11 events, five each for men and women and one mixed team. I'm just like, you ski, you shoot, you ski. You shoot. <laughs> That's just the craziest thing to me. I don't know if there's a weirder Olympic sport. I, there is i haven't seen it i've watched uh some of it here and i always think that's a, a crazy event too um the one that gets me is the skeleton event where you, you go down head first on this little sled on, on like the the bobsled course here and you know the one that gets for bobsled and luge and that just looks insane <laughs> <laughs> the, the curling is another one it's like yeah. Who invents this stuff? (laughs) Well, a different type of getting up some shots when you talk about what we cover and watch, and that is, of course, college basketball. And uh, the new Joe Lenardi brackets are out. Gonzaga, Auburn, Arizona, and Kentucky are the top four seeds. Hard to argue with those four. You got Purdue, Kansas, Baylor, and Duke as the uh, number twos in the latest bracket put out by Joe Lenardi on ESPN.com. But it it looks like those those four and, and maybe five have certainly separated themselves from the pack. I, I think so. I, I think there's maybe a smaller group of teams in the country that could win it all. Somebody asked me for a a dark horse the other day, and I was really hard pressed to come up with one. I, you know, I, I said Providence. Uh, they're like twenty one and two, and have really played well in the Big East. And but I don't know the two losses Providence had were to power conference teams, and they were by double figures. So. I don't know that there's a dark horse. I think Joe, Joey Brackets, as always, has has singled out, you know, the teams that, that have a chance. I've just been looking at Gonzaga, and I know you have too. This is crazy. Going back to 1819, Gonzaga has spent at least four weeks at number one in each season. They've now been number one in the country, 31 of 72 weeks over the last four years. Duke and Baylor are their next closest competitors at 11 and 10, respectively. Wow. So uh, it's crazy that you consider Gonzaga in a mid-major league, but they've transcended that many, many moons ago. Chris, one thing I uncovered about Gonzaga that's really interesting is they have won 66 games in a row at home at their gym uh, there in Spokane, their home arena. That is halfway, a little over halfway to the all-time record of 129 consecutive home wins set by Kentucky back in the 40s and 50s. I've always thought that was a record that was basically unapproachable, that you could put that one down and ink, chisel it in stone and, and all those things because no matter how good you are, especially in a power conference, somebody's going to get you at home over a, a span of 
10 or 12 years. I just never thought that record was approachable, and I still don't really think it is. But for Gonzaga, you think about who's going to come to their place and play. They're, they're going to pretty much dominate their conference most years and, and win all their home games against their conference opponents. And as far as other power conference teams or, or teams that are certainly capable of going in there and, and winning on their floor, you're, you're not going to get very many of those teams willing to play a true road game at Gonzaga. I mean, they, can, they might come to Spokane and play at that arena or go to Seattle and play them there or play them in Phoenix or somewhere like that. But um, I think that's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what the ceiling is for this uh, home court win streak that Gonzaga's put together. Yeah, the only thing that concerns me about it is uh, conference shifting. Uh, so many teams, I- I'm dreading next spring when I have to sort this all out for, <laughs> for Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook. But who knows what Gonzaga might do. I mean, BYU has left the West Coast Conference for the Big 12. and I don't know if that's going to spur a mass exodus or, or what Gonzaga is thinking. But that would be the only jeopardy to it because – You know, St. Mary's has gone in there and give it their best shot. Uh, BYU, it's just, uh, I don't know. They're they're on a groove right now. Uh, I was just looking up their offense. They lead the country in scoring 90 points a game. They lead the country in fast break points, about 22. They've got five players averaging in double double figures. And I just filled out my Bob Cousy Award ballot for the five final finalists. And, Andrew Nemhard, their point guard, was on my list, and I'm sure he'll be on most people's list. So uh, I just don't know how this team – I said it last year, and daggone, they, they almost pulled it off, but they ran into a buzzsaw with Baylor. But I don't know. They could be hard to dislodge this year. Uh, they, they've had two shots at it, and, and I think that they might get a third this year. Real quick, who are the other four on your Koozie uh, Award ballot, if you can reveal that? Andrew Nemhard. Gonzaga, Severe Wheeler, Kentucky, Tiger Campbell, UCLA, Max Abmus, Oral Roberts, and Colin Gillespie, Villanova. All right. So, uh, Those are some my, good ones. That's my group, and I'm sticking with them. <laughs> yeah, I saw a Tiger playing for UCLA the other night. Yeah, and I know we're kind of maybe I'm veering off course here a little bit, but I found myself late on Saturday nights watching whatever Pac 12 game is on just so I could hear Dave Passion, Bill Walton. I sat there and watched that game, and Gosh, I mean, UCLA almost uh, got a steal on a three that would have tied it at the buzzer after USC pretty much had the game in the bag. And then the week before that, I, I watched uh, that game at Arizona State, the triple overtime game. But th- those guys are so entertaining. I-, I can sit and pretty much watch any game those two are, are calling because they just make it so fun. And uh, I almost it-, it made me think that I almost wished there was like an alternate broadcast for the Final Four where we could just get those those two calling the game uh, you know, on-, on another channel somewhere. You know, sort of like Peyton and Eli did for the football game. So, uh, yeah, that, that's some good stuff, man. <laughs> you always wonder what what Walton's prep is. I'm I'm sure <laughs> if it, any. it might uh, uh, <laughs> maybe a little herb, uh, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and you know, it's a shtick because he'll 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 say to Dave Pash, well, "What's your name again?" <laughs> but Pash is the perfect straight. Oh, he absolutely is. Like Pash is the one guy who can really figure out what to do with Bill Walton. I've seen Walton do games with other people, and it was like they couldn't figure out how to make it all work. And, and I try to put myself in their shoes and say, okay, could I do this? You know, can I, can I let him riff but still keep the game on the rails? And I, I don't know if I could or not. But Pat, Pat, Pat Hash is <laughs> awesome at it. It's so good. No, it's so he's the best. I've, I've started to look in to see if we can get him on the podcast because <laughs> he would be hilarious. 
I would try to get Bill, but I don't know that we could understand him. Uh, he, I, he, he, he does have some connection to Blue Ribbon. I don't know if it's still there, but on his uh, Twitter opening page, uh, there's a picture of him in his backyard teepee yep. reading a copy of Blue Ribbon. <laughs> so uh, reading about, I don't know if that's a testimonial or not. <laughs> reading about the Conference of Champions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you talked about conference defections. Uh, Marshall, Old Dominion, and Southern Miss are all leaving Conference USA on June 30th for the Sun Belt Conference. Uh, they have been expected to remain through next season. It doesn't sound like it's a very friendly split. So, you know, you're talking about how challenging it's going to be next season to figure out who all is where. So there are three more right there that look like they're going to go ahead and do it. Yeah, it's it's strange. Uh, you know, it started with Texas and Oklahoma uh, from, from the Big 12 to whenever it is, the SEC. Now, that's a pretty stiff penalty if they leave early. Uh, I don't think it's – it may be $2 million in Conference USA, but – all of a sudden, you know, it's like leagues that were on pretty decent footing are struggling. Conference USA has, has lost a lot of people. I know UAB is going to go to the American, uh, among others. Uh, the OVC, which you and I have watched for years, uh, lost their best teams, and I don't know what's going to happen there. It's weird, but there's definitely – lawyers are, are going to be the beneficiary yeah. of, of a lot of this because – as schools try to negotiate their way out of uh, whatever it was, like Conference USA, supposedly members have to give 14 months notice before they leave. I guarantee you UAB is, isn't doing that. And uh, Western Kentucky, your alma mater, is, is, is hanging in there, but yeah. what kind of league will it be uh, You know, when the smoke clears? Yeah, I, I wondered uh, what would happen to Western Kentucky also, and maybe if, if the MAC might be a landing spot for them. I you had heard different things about whether there are some conversations that happened to that end, but uh, it, it never uh, went any farther than that. Uh, speaking of uh, some of the OVC's best teams, Murray State is 21st this week in the AP poll. Belmont got two votes this week, and uh, Belmont won some un-Belmont-like games uh, in the last week or so. Well, they, they won some crazy ones, but also won some grinders. Uh, I went over and saw Belmont play Moorhead State last Thursday, and uh, the Bruins won 48-47. to 47. That's usually a halftime score for that program. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but it was it was a game with uh, a lot of defense. Moorhead State is a terrific defensive team. Uh, Nick Musinski and Grayson Murphy uh, made the big shots toward the end of the game. But Johnny Broom, remember that name for Moorhead State. To me, he looks like the OVC version of Willie Cauley-Stein, if you remember him when he played for Kentucky. Just oh, yeah. a, a long, athletic guy who's really quick and versatile. Um and he's averaging 16 points and 10 rebounds per game, listed at 6'10". Uh, that guy, you know, somebody said, well, somebody might approach him from, poach him from a high major. It's like the NBA draft might be the one that, that poaches him. Uh, but he, he was really impressive. It just seemed like he got to everything on the defensive end. Uh, Murray beat Moorhead State uh, at Moorhead on Saturday, 57-53. And the Racers look to me like they have a chance to go undefeated in the OVC. Uh, Beaumont plays there on the 24th. But Murray wiped them out the first time around when they played in Nashville. So, uh, th- those those are some good teams. Uh, again, Murray's been ranked for a couple weeks. Uh, Belmont, if you look at the Joe Lenardi uh, uh, bracket, they're uh, about six or seven deep when you look at teams that are the, like the first four or next four outs. So we'll keep an eye on those teams. Uh, Chris, speaking of big guys who are really dominant, Auburn's Walker Kessler is having a heck of a season, had a triple-double against Texas A&M. 
and is the first player uh, since Shaq and also um, uh, Roy Rogers from, from Alabama to have multiple triple doubles in conference play in a single season in the SEC. Uh, he's having just a remarkable year. Uh, Kessler is, of course, transferred from North Carolina to Auburn. But, man, he's a big part of a team that looks like they have a chance to, to win the whole deal. He really is. Uh, you know, he's he's come a long way under Bruce Pearl's tutelage. He, uh, I don't, he, he didn't make near that impact in North Carolina, which is always loaded with, with quality bigs. But just think how much difference Hubert Davis's first year at North Carolina would be now if, he, if they still had Walker uh, Kessler. But it made me stop and recall that I was fortunate enough to be covering the SEC when, when Shaq roamed the earth. <laughs> and I wanted to look it up and see – it's unbelievable what he did, even from get-go. So the year that he had uh, the two triple doubles, he was a freshman. The first one came January 2nd, 1990 at Houston. 16 points, 19 boards, 10 blocks. Then this is crazy, and I don't know why they were playing Loyola Marymount in February of that year. 148 to 141 LSU. I remember that game, yep. Yeah, and, and Shaq goes for 20. 24 boards and 12 blocks. And then I started looking up some of his other games. He had 53 points and 19 boards against Arkansas State uh, as a freshman. Uh, or maybe, maybe no, maybe it was his sophomore year. 43, 19, and 8 against Northern Arizona. Uh, his last of his six career triple-doubles, 26 points, 13 boards, and then NCAA record 11 blocks against BYU. And there was a list of his all-time best games, and one of them included a game in which he was kicked out. And I remember it like it was yesterday, March 13, 1992, SEC tournament quarterfinals in Birmingham. He gets into a scrap with Carlos Groves, mm-hmm. uh, who at 6'7", 230, is not a little guy, but you would hardly think that Shaq at 7'1", 300, needed some help. But here comes Dale Brown running out to the court, trying to get into the middle of that melee. Uh, Shaq, uh, who had 16 points and, and 16 boards before he was booted, also missed the semifinals the next day. And I remember I was the pool reporter that night for everybody. You know, I had to go and and uh, report on what the deal was with with Dale Brown. Who is nuts? I mean, <laughs> an, an all-time uh, – that reminds me, I've just got to tell this uh, Dale Brown story. It was at the SEC Media Days, uh, back when it used to be a stand-up comedy show. They, they had Sonny Smith and, and Whip Sanderson and, and Hugh Durham from Georgia, and, of course, Dale. And uh, Hugh Durham was in the middle of his spiel, and he was at a podium. And all of a sudden, there was this huge noise – and it was a, it was an air conditioning uh, unit coming on, and Hugh stopped, you know, and it, and he waited a second, and in his best deadpan voice, he said, "Must be Dale Brown's spaceship taking off." <laughs> <laughs> Dale was a nut, but he used to say that, you know, he encouraged Shaq. And this was before one and done. He, Shaq left after his junior year. He said he encouraged Shaq to go because everybody 
was bullying him and, and pushing him and shoving him. And I don't think Shaq ever got bullied in his life, or at least not after he went to his full uh, height and weight, but he, he was right. I mean, people tried to stop Shaq and it was just crazy. Uh, I'll leave you with this sophomore year. He averages 28 and almost 15 boards and his final year, 24 and 14 boards. Just incredible. He never could make free throws. He was a career 57% free throw shooter, but that was a dominant team. They had Stanley Roberts and Chris, uh, what was the little Chris Jackson, name? Chris Jackson. Uh, and Chris Jackson was supposed to be the, I guess the jewel of the class. I don't know. Uh, but, but it was Shaq was the guy and, uh, you know, he's, he's in all the hall of fames and had his Jersey retired. I actually got to be around him a little bit when I worked at, uh, at NBA, NBA TV, Barkley was there and Kevin McHale, um, Jim Jackson. There's some really good guys that, that work there. Uh, Steve Smith, but, but Shaq is a guy that I'll never forget. And I'm glad that Walker Kessler is doing what he's doing. And I'm glad it made me want to go back and just look at, at Shaq and see how dominant he really was. Yeah. He was an awesome player at LSU and those are terrific teams. I always thought those are some of the best SEC teams that didn't win enough to go to a final four or win a national championship because as you as you mentioned Shaq Stanley Roberts Chris Jackson who was a just a dominant scoring guard I mean he was gosh he was probably only about six feet tall but I mean he had all these monster scoring games he was just unstoppable uh they had Vernell Singleton uh, I remember him he was really yeah. good I mean th- those are excellent teams but uh you know they, they just didn't go super deep in March no. I don't think any of the years he was there and you know I remember that game when he got thrown out against Tennessee with the, the the situation with Carlos Groves those are terrific teams at LSU back then it was funny though you know you talk about Dale Brown he almost did better with with teams that had some pretty good players that that he could motivate to to be to come together yeah. and, and make a deep run like you think about the 86 team that went to the final four other years he might have had better talent but he was able to get teams he was able to motivate them to play maybe beyond what they really were he did some of the craziest stuff. One year he brought a Native American to the SEC tournament. I think that was in Nashville. Another year I think he might have brought a young child who, who had cancer. He would take his uh, – there's a notorious prison in Louisiana. My mind's going blank on the name of it, but he would take his kids there. And uh, But one of the funniest lines, they were engaged in a – in a really tough NCAA tournament game with uh, Indiana and Bobby Knight's quote, <laughs> Bobby Knight's quote after he said, I was worried for a while. And then I looked down on the other <laughs> sideline and I saw Dale Brown standing there. <laughs> that, that was the phone slam game. Wasn't it? Wasn't that the in Cincinnati slam game? Yep. And uh, so yeah, Dale had his moments <laughs> and, and he's a legend, and, and he still goes to attends games there. I, I think, and they named the court recently. after him, right? Didn't they just recently That's name right. the court after him? That's right. And and he he certainly was a pioneer. I guess he'd come from Weber State, and he took the LSU job, which was no peach at the time. And I remember that he would do all kinds of crazy things. But one of his craziest was he got a truck and he put a stepladder in it. And he drove all around the state with these purple and gold basketball nets. And he would hang them up on outdoor courts everywhere he went. You know, you we've all played on those outdoor yeah, courts yeah. with chain nets and stuff. 
or no nets. Yeah. And uh, so he was a showman, uh, funny sometimes without meaning to be, uh, and a good coach. But I, I think LSU fans, you know, might agree that he, he was loaded that year. He had Roberts <laughs> Jackson and, and Shaq, and he didn't get much done with it. Big injury loss for Baylor, and, and uh, this guy's out for the season with a knee injury. Chama Chachua. They call him Everyday John. His name's Jonathan. Everyday John because he, he brings his <clears> lunch <throat> pail and he works hard every day. And I watched the injury. It was in their last game. He was just running up the floor, and all of a sudden he just collapsed and uh, blown out ligaments. They'd already been playing without leading scorer L.J. Cryer, the guard, um, lost two games without him. He's been out since January 25th. So it's really a shame that we're not going to get to see that team at its, at full strength. Yeah. They certainly would have been among that number that we, we talked about earlier that had a chance to win it all. Yeah. A chance to uh, potentially defend their national championship. A uh, quick check of the, uh, the games coming up on Saturday, as far as top 25 matchups, we mentioned Baylor, they're going to play TCU, which is having a good season. Uh, Illinois, Michigan State, a couple ranked teams there. Man, there's some really good games. Uh, Xavier at Connecticut, Texas Tech plays at Texas, the rematch of that one. Uh, Kentucky hosts Alabama. Auburn plays at Florida. Uh, Iowa at Ohio State. Uh, Tennessee and Arkansas will be a really good game uh, with both those teams uh, ranked in the top 25. Arkansas has clawed back after kind of a tough start in SEC play. They're up to number 23 after beating Auburn last week, Tennessee at number 16. Um, We mentioned some other games. Florida State's kind of fallen off a, a bit this season. They'll play at number nine, Duke. Kansas plays at West Virginia. Uh, Oregon's going to play at Arizona, Washington at UCLA. So uh, a little glimpse of the uh, games coming up on Saturday. A few more ranked teams in action on Sunday, including Providence playing at Butler. That Providence team is good. Uh, Houston at Wichita State will be a good matchup. Michigan against Wisconsin. Rutgers at Purdue. Uh, Washington State plays at USC. Those are the uh, games on Sunday involving top 25 teams. So should be a fun slate of games uh, coming up this weekend. Uh, Chris, it's going to be a busy time for me. Uh, it's, it's what's called crossover season. There are a couple yes. of these every year. In the late fall, you have the football-basketball crossover. In the early spring, late winter, early spring, uh, you have the basketball-baseball crossover. Now, uh, college baseball starts on Friday, and a lot of folks know I, I call games for Vanderbilt, uh, which has been one of the best programs in the country over the last 15 years or so. been in the College World Series five times since 2011, including last year. Uh, so we'll start doing baseball on Friday. I'm going to go back to doing uh, SEC Network Plus games on, on the TV side, so looking forward to that. But it's going to be a busy week. Uh, basketball at Auburn on Wednesday, baseball Friday, basketball at uh, Vanderbilt Place, Texas A&M on Saturday, and then right back to uh, Vanderbilt and Oklahoma State for the uh, series finale on Sunday. So uh, I'll, I will uh, be busy and uh, on the road some. It's, it's going to be a crazy stretch coming up, but uh, the hard part is just trying to get all the prep done. You feel like you got the hay in the barn once you get to the, the arena or to the ballpark. You know, I was going to ask you about that. I, I knew that Vanderbilt's season, and, and in fact, all of college basketball or baseball starts in February. What are the adjustments you have to make as an announcer from a game that goes 90 miles an hour to a game that, you know, baseball – People who don't understand the game, like you and me, criticize uh, the pace of play or whatever. What are the adjustments you have to make in in calling those two sports, especially one day basketball, right. the next day baseball? Uh, that part, like one day to the next, isn't so bad. It's, it's the just the the abrupt transition from 
doing a doing one or the other sports for the first time after doing the others like the transition from doing soccer and working football to doing basketball to me is a, a much harsher transition than the basketball to baseball because you go from games that are kind of moderately paced to like you say basketball goes really fast and and you you really have to pay attention and for baseball it's a much slower pace to me the thing that's challenging about baseball is there is so much ground to look at and cover basketball. I always say I like basketball because you know, for somebody who doesn't have the best vision in the world, it's five on five in a 94, 94 feet in a 94 by 50 box. <laughs> and you only have yeah. about, you know, 10 or 12 guys that are going to play on a given night for each team for baseball. It's like, everything's in play. You know, you got a guy, yeah. a gigantic field with, with stands yeah. and foul territory and, and everything you gotta else. You got to watch the bullpen. Y- yes. You know, all of it. And uh, yeah. the old saying, keep your eye on the ball, that always applies to me for no matter what sport you're calling. But, yeah, it's an interesting transition because the first few baseball games you do after doing a whole bunch of basketball games, it feels like it's just crawling along. And uh, the first basketball games you do after doing uh, some other sports, it feels like it's going really, really fast. So uh, it'll be fun. I'm Vander- looking forward to April yep. 5th yeah? when you're going to allow me to get into the broadcast booth and watch you operate. That'll be an SEC uh, Network broadcast, right? Yeah, SEC Network Plus. Uh, we'll be doing uh, Vanderbilt and Tennessee that day. And uh, you know, you, if you show up, I'm, I'm going to put you to work. You know, I, you, <laughs> that's you, what scares you, you know, me. You know, baseball. Man. You know, you can uh, yeah. you can serve as an, an associate producer or uh, uh, something like that. So uh, yeah, we'll uh, be looking forward to having you up there. It'll be a lot of fun, and uh, uh, it'll be th- cool. th- those games and are I cool. I know Vandy has a great park, and they're playing Tennessee, which has revitalized their program. Yep. So I'm really looking forward to that. Day after the Final Four, day before the championship game in in hoops. So that's going to be a pretty cool uh, three days. Chris, we'll wrap up this episode of our podcast with our Book of Boba Fett Episode 7 review. The spoiler-filled review, and if you have, the episode's been out for a week, so hopefully everybody has seen it or will uh, maybe uh, uh, turn down their listening device for, for this portion of our podcast so uh, to give a quick recap, uh, War arrived with the uh, Pike Syndicate attacking uh, Boba and Mando and the whole crew. They were holed up in the uh, the bar that got bombed in the previous episode. Uh, they got some help from the good folks of Freetown. Uh, the Rancor came along. Boba went and got the Rancor when it looked like uh, they weren't going to be able to handle the droids that had the deflector shields. And then after all that went down, Grogu was able to calm down the Rancor after he went nuts and looked like he was just going to wreck the whole place. Uh, Fennec Shan popped in to take out the bad guys, including the mayor. My son wasn't very happy about that particular development, but uh, it was an action-packed final episode of this uh, season of the Book of Boba Fett. You know, I I thought it tied up a lot of loose ends. I still see people that... uh, Here's a quote from a website that I look at occasionally called Den of Geek. The Book of Boba Fett remains an oddity. Not a central viewing on its own. The show sets up the future of the Mandalorian without ever really taking its own protagonist in an interesting direction. And, you know, maybe they're right about that. Uh, Maybe uh, Boba Fett and Fennec, we really don't know what's going to go on. Uh, But it does set up Mando, which you and I predicted. You know, uh, Grogu was was given a choice by Luke Skywalker. You can can take uh, Yoda's lightsaber, or you can take this chainmail Beskar armor and go back with your boy and <laughs> i thought that was the coolest part in the thing when 
Mando saw Grogu for the first time, and he just kind of levitated into Mando's arms. <laughs> all all right like, in the middle, rumble, of, baby. All, all right in the middle of being chased by uh, these these battle droids. They look like they were just going to wipe in, out in everybody. Like a rickshaw, right in a rickshaw, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but but it was crazy. I mean, I mean, if if you wanted action, uh, you had it from from the Rancor to uh, an old West gunfight, uh, which scene and. And uh, the mods, those cats riding their Vespas, they were pitching in. And the people of Freetown, even though they didn't have their marshal, who luckily, Cobb Vanth, we found out if you stayed through the credits, he didn't die. Oh, really? In episode six, yeah. He's he's in a, he's in the, uh, uh, the, the tank recuperating. Oh, he's in the back to tank. Uh, okay. He's in the, yeah. After, back, uh, back at the, the, the palace. After, so, uh, uh, after Cad Bane looked like took him out and definitely took out as his deputy. There wasn't much coming back from that one, but, uh, I, you know, I, I gotta admit, I didn't watch it all the way through the end of the credits and I should have I mean, As soon as we get off this podcast, I'm going to go watch the end of it. But. No, you, you can definitely dial right. You know, their credits are incredibly long because they're in like 16 different languages, <laughs> but, uh, it showed him, uh, and it also showed him with the guy who patched up Fennec Shand, uh, the body mo- modification dude. Yeah. Uh, in real life, he's actually a jazz musician and a talented one called Thundercat, huh. uh, the, the actor who plays that. And he's in there, too. So I know fans are, are looking forward to that. I think you just to me, uh, you, if you're a fan and you weren't if you were underwhelmed by Boba Fett, uh I think it served its purpose. It it propelled uh, the Mando uh, saga forward, uh, and it set up things that we don't know about Boba Fett. So there's a whole world out there that they can do. John Favreau uh, and uh, his partners uh, know more about Star Wars than they'll forget more than I'll ever know. So I'm going to hang with them, man. I thought this was good. I thought it was fun. I, I think people get a little too wrapped up in, in what it all means in the bigger picture. You know, if you kind of take it on its own, I, I thought it was just fun to watch, and, and they did a good job with it. I, I guess I'm not, you know, I, I love Star Wars, but I'm I'm not, like, going to get too bent out of shape if the story doesn't go exactly how I want it to. Um, you know, I, I wondered if Cad Bane was actually dead, too, because the, the little red light never went off on his uh on his uh, chest armor there. So um, I don't know, maybe we'll get some clarity on that. I I think he was probably done for, but it it wasn't totally clear. I thought he, I was, that was one disappointment for me. I I wish they would have kept him around a little bit longer. I thought he was a good villain, kind of the old, like you said, the old West sort of gunslinger type guy who was a bounty hunter. And I guess, you know, had a past relationship with Boba Fett and I think actually trained him when he was younger. So uh, I I thought he was a good villain. And, uh, you know, Boba of course took him out with the, uh, the gaffy stick that he made with the Tuscan Raiders on, on the early, episodes yeah i i think it's cool uh, uh again hearkening back to spaghetti westerns uh his character was was based on lee van cleef's uh bad guy in, in the spaghetti westerns so uh you know it, it's such a the thing about that i like about star wars it's such an homage and a pastiche to things that have gone before it right there's uh there there's a a a, a, a a YouTube video that talks about uh, star Wars Easter eggs that I think is essential viewing. Uh, so you can go back and look and see all the references. I just love talented filmmakers like a Quentin Tarantino that can, you know, mash up their, their 
all the things that have inspired them and, and put it together and, and make something new. Tarantino lived in Knoxville, right? He did. He, he, he lived in Knoxville and then he, he and my son have a lot in common. In fact, some people who know both of them said that they would love to get the two of them in a, in a room. They're both huh. film historians. Obviously Quentin Tarantino is, is much more accomplished, but, uh, my son worked in video stores just like Tarantino did. And that's how they got their mainly how they got their, uh, their, their film school. They just watched movie after movie after movie. My son has watched countless thousands of films. And I know Tarantino yeah. did. They're both music fans. And my son has always told me uh, it's not derivative. It's an homage. And, and I think that's true of Tarantino. And I think it's true of star Wars. It's probably true of a lot of different uh, walks of life and, and professions, uh, probably even uh, what we do to, to a certain extent. Chris, always a lot of fun to do the podcast with you, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, we will, and we'll start our new series, Blue Ribbon Bracket Breakers, next week. All right, looking forward to it. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.